Welcome to the What We Need Now podcast by Greenpeace USA. You're listening to the Grand Lake Farmers Market in Oakland, California. We're surrounded by smiling faces, little strollers going around, fresh local fruit and vegetables, friendly greetings, wonderful, vibrant colors. There's guitar being played, there's a drummer in the distance, the sights, the sounds, the smells. It's a sensory feast. But for many people, especially those who live in lower-income neighborhoods that are also food deserts, this is not the typical experience. Their options for accessing fresh, healthy fruit and vegetables are severely limited, and the costs are prohibitive. So today, we're exploring the connection between the folks who grow the food and those who need more access. And we're highlighting the role of Black farmers in addressing the gaps that lead to food injustice. What We Need Now, a podcast where we invite the people doing the work to do the talking. What We Need Now. What We Need Now. So, Tanya. Did you grow up going to farmer's markets? Actually, Rico, no. I grew up in Jamaica, where a lot of the produce we consumed came from the rural areas, which were a big central market in Kingston. My mom would take home huge bags with fresh fruit and vegetables, and it was wonderful. As a grad student, I actually lived in Southeast D.C., and I would say definitely qualified as a food desert. So my experience of farmer's markets in the USA came later when I visited the more affluent neighborhoods such as Roslyn in Virginia. Roslyn sounds, it sounds like a wealthy neighborhood to me. I don't know. It it is. (laughs) It was very different from what I found in Southeast DC and so much closer to my experiences in Jamaica. Yeah, that must have been a crazy transition. Like, what was it like to go from, you know, having your food be fairly close to you where you live to living in a food desert? And how did you know that you were in a food desert? Yeah, that was an interesting transition for me. Living in a food desert is like when you go to the store, there's not a lot of options. There are lots of mm-hmm. processed foods, stuff that is not very good or healthy for you. And it's either not available or it's very expensive. I remember we also had to take a few buses to get to a supermarket that was large enough to get a wide variety of fresh, healthy produce. And I remember being very excited at all the wonderful produce that was available to me once I started going to these other um, farmers' markets. And I would also shop in Arlington another affluent neighborhood where my college campus was located and take the metro home with bags full of groceries. You're pretty much describing like the textbook definition of a food desert and also very similar to what my experience was when I lived in one. The CDC calls food deserts areas that lack access to affordable fruits, vegetables, whole grains, low-fat milk, and other foods that make up the full range of a healthy diet. And the key word is access, right? Like because that that can be impaired, that can be hindered by a lot of different factors, income, location, time, and the ability to travel to a store. 
Yep, that sounds like me. <laughs> For me, you know, I didn't I didn't grow up going to farmers markets either. Um and and I was not eating farm fresh produce like you were in Jamaica. We were at Ingles, Piggly Wiggly and these other like big box grocery stores and a lot of convenience oriented meals. When I came to farmers markets a little later in life, it was like I discovered some magical place, you know, to like go talk to the person who grew the food that you're about to eat is a very different experience. And that was in Chicago and and I had a farmers market pretty close to my house. I also, in that time, discovered a, a CSA, which I was using for a while, and that introduced me to a bunch of produce I had never even tried. CSA. Can you tell us more about that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So um, CSAs, or Community Supported Agriculture, and I'll just be super real. I did not. I had to Google what the CSA stood for. I know what a CSA is, but the words I was, were not super familiar. Uh, but yeah, CSAs, they're really dope. You know, they're basically a service that works directly with farms, or it might even be put on by the farms themselves, and it lets you pay in advance to get a selection of whatever crops are available for the week. So in my case, it was a flat rate, and I'm getting farm fresh, in-season produce from a bunch of different local farms in the Midwest, and it tastes amazing because it's it's fresh, and, it's, and it really forced me out of my comfort zone as far as cooking because sometimes I was literally like getting something out of the box that I've either never eaten before or I've at least never seen it raw, and so I'm like Googling, <laughs> what what is this, or like Google image search, and then you know also Googling the recipe to figure out what to make for it, so... But it was, yeah, I definitely learned a lot during that time. Yeah, that sounds interesting, Rico. Google is our friend. So I have a question for you. How many farmers do you know? You know, I know a surprising number of farmers at this point in my life. Um, you know, mostly through my wife who used to manage the Grand Lake Farmers Market that we were listening to earlier. I also play music at some of the markets in the Bay Area. So I've gotten a chance to meet some folks that way. Um, and I've been surprised by the diversity and race age range, gender, sexuality, number of urban farmers, like people are really be farming like in the city. It's great. And to be honest, maybe like before seven years ago, I definitely had a narrow perception of farmers that every farmer lived way, way, way out in the sticks and everybody's wearing flannel all the time. And I just assumed they were way older than me and they're like 99.999% white and male, you know, but it's, it's not entirely the case. But actually, some of your assumptions weren't that far off, Rico. Black farmers make up less than 2% of all farms in the United States. According to the USDA, black-owned farms tend to be smaller by acreage than the average farm and have lower overall sales. But it didn't always used to be this way. At the turn of the 20th century, former slaves and their descendants had amassed up to 14 million acres of land. That's a lot of land. Black agriculture was very prominent per capita. There were more black farmers than white farmers. But at the turn of the 21st century, 90% of that land was lost. Some of that can be chalked up to the Great Migration when Southern blacks fled to the northern cities to escape the racist violence and systemic oppression of the South. To me, that's, that's absolutely wild. Like, I know I shouldn't be surprised that a hundred years ago, there were more black farmers than white farmers, considering like how much agriculture is a part of black history in this country. But it is surprising. I definitely shouldn't be surprised to learn that 90% of that land was lost. But just to find that number in that time frame, it, it is staggering for me. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Even less known, though, is a story of those who stayed in those rural areas and their efforts to hold their own on their land within a legal system that seemed designed to shift it and their generational wealth it represented to white ownership. 
between 1910 to 2007, when they lost 80% of their farmland, often because they lacked access to loans or insurance needed to support their businesses. There was a slight increase in black farm operators between 2007 and 2012, but the number has declined recently again, and black operators on the whole tend to skew a little bit older than farmers in general. So we're seeing definitely a trend of decline, right? The financial barriers for black farmers today from loans to insurance echo those same disproportionate financial hurdles that black entrepreneurs face in accessing capital in other sectors. And, it, and it's really a legacy that goes all the way back to the Reconstruction era and, and policies like Roosevelt's New Deal, which brought prosperity for some Americans, but explicitly excluded not only black people, but farmers. But the history of segregation in this country and its impact on the development of black communities. Is there a connection between the small number of black farmers and food access in black neighborhoods? I mean, my instinct is yes. <laughs> like, there's definitely a connection. And anecdotally, I just think about my own grandma, who I always end up talking about on this podcast one way or the other. Shout out, grandma. Hope Shout you out, grandma. But she grew up picking fresh fruit on a farm, and now she lives in a food desert on the south side of Chicago, where fresh fruit, at least, is not very accessible. So that kind of profound change in just literally one person's lifetime, I, I think, is being played out in black communities across the country. Yes, um, access to food and food deserts is a real challenge. We're going to get into all this and more with today's guest, Ivy Lawrence Walls, a change maker and CEO of Ivy Lee Farms in Houston, Texas, working to increase sustainable food access and wellness in her community. Thanks so much for coming in, Martine. It's Martin, and no problem. Uh, I'm excited to get this loan together and get to work on my farm. Yeah, we have some lingering concerns about your applications. We're going to need you to submit another 100 references and it'll take us another few weeks to a month to review it. The last frost was a month ago. I'm way yeah, behind If you had already. more credit or collateral or capital, we'd be in a different boat. But you only put up your farm, and it isn't currently a high-value farm, especially since last year your yield was really Last low. year, y'all held me up for months. So I was barely able to have a yield at all. So I hear that you're disappointed with our rigorous review process. I encourage you to fill out our 52-page survey, and while we would be heartbroken to lose your business, you're welcome to apply elsewhere. I do um, doubt you'll have much more Excuse me. Yeah, this is a lot. You really don't have to do all this. You should get up, take your paperwork, and come to BFBL. BFBL? Black Farmers Bank Loans, where we help you cultivate instead of assimilate. You don't have to jump through a million hoops with BFBL. We value you and the work that you do. That's it. I'm going to BFBL right now. Yes. Uh, Martin? Hi, this is Tanya. I use she, her pronouns, and I live on Manoak land in Fairfax, Virginia. Yes, welcome back to the show, y'all. My name is Rico. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm very, very excited about our guest. We have Ivy Lawrence Walls from Ivy Lee Farms. We have a change maker, a farmer, an entrepreneur, and somebody who's working in both racial justice, climate, and of course, farming. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. Ivy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, could you share your pronouns as well? She, her, hers. 
Beautiful. So our, our first question for you is just how did you get into farming and how has it changed your life? I would say I have been into farming for about three years full time. I grew up on the same land that I work on now. So when my when I was about three years old, my parents purchased five acres just inside of the city. So I've always been homesteading. I always knew we always had animals. We had chickens. We had the little McDonald farm growing up, but we didn't grow vegetables. Uh, when I moved to the community I live in now, Sunnyside, and discovered that it was a food desert community, it opened my eyes to the lack of access of quality vegetables in, in the community. I moved from a food oasis to a food desert and I decided to do something about it. I asked my parents if I could use a piece of our land to start cultivating vegetables. And I started collecting pieces of bits of things, bits of wood, bits of metal, just to create like a greenhouse structure so that I could start growing. It was, uh, I started farming out of necessity, but I've always been a lover of the land. That sounds like some really very interesting work that you're doing in your community, Ivy. We're happy you're sharing that with us. Could you tell us a little bit more about those programs and how they're impacting your community? Definitely. So Ivy Leaf Farms, the produce is our mission and not our product. So everything that we grow at our farm is given away to community members in the three zip codes that surround the farm, and they make up our neighborhood of Sunnyside. So everything I grow, well, when it's in season, when there's no freeze, when there's no drought, is given away to the neighborhood. I'm also in the process with fellow Black farmers to open up a grocery store, which is called Fresh House Grocery. So it should be open in the next few months. We're just waiting on a few permitting and uh, licensing things so that we can open. But That's amazing. Our, the goal, <laughs> thank you. The goal of Holy Setting Out when I started was the lack of grocery store and the lack of opportunity to access organic, culturally relevant foods. Um, and so within our grocery store, we'll have all of those things. Sounds wonderful. I'd love to be able to come and visit your your store one of these days and get some fresh produce. So tell us, Ivy, as a young Black woman, you're not the quote-unquote typical farmer. What are some of the unique challenges you face as a farmer and as an entrepreneur? Um, being in Texas, uh, I mean, I... I love that statement and hate that statement at the same time. Um, I may not be the marketed farmer, but there are a lot of Black women who have cultivated the earth before us. Our grandmothers, even though they didn't call themselves farmers, they were feeding us and they were feeding our neighbors and feeding our block. Um, so uh, the challenges, I think I, the biggest one I face is um, when people, when I walk into some of the rooms and some of the spaces, I don't look like I belong. However, when it when I introduce who I am and what I'm doing, I fit right in. So um, it's just the first intro, uh, I guess. I mean, I'm in Texas. I mean, you can only imagine how that is. Um, but luckily, I live in a neighborhood that is still surrounded by acres of land. And most people either have horses or they have some kind of uh, cow or some kind of, um, uh, I guess, agriculture background. We're, we're city country. Uh, so uh, in my space, in our neighborhood, I don't stick out. But when I leave the neighborhood, it, it looks pretty different. So I spend most of my time in this room, which is like my office and my house and it's my music studio. Every, like that is that's my typical day is a lot of time in this room. Um, and I feel like yours is probably very different. Your typical day is very different than mine. So just like what does a typical day in, in your life look like? Uh First, it starts off with counting your animals. 
So uh, when you wake up, get to the farm, um, it varies between five and 10 o'clock, depending on if I have meetings uh, Hmm. and uh, counting your animals. So you might discover that maybe one of your animals got into something. And so now that starts your whole day of fixing a piece of the barn or fixing a Hmm. mending a fence. So the day looks different every single day. I, there's no farmer that can tell you they do the exact same thing. I mean, you could have the chickens got out. Like, it's just what it, like water line breaks overnight. The weather might change. So um, it starts, my day typically starts with counting my animals. And if they're all counted for it, then I go um, to the back and cultivate the earth. Sure. We know that you are a farmer and I believe you're also a student. But could you tell us a little bit more? You mentioned your parents and how you grew up in a farming community. But is there anyone now that you are working closely with as a mentor or someone that you can relate to in this field? Yeah. So um, Jeremy Peaches, he runs Fresh Life Organics. He is another farmer who also graduated from Prairie View. We, although we didn't know each other at the, at the same time, we went to school at the same time. And so he has a farm. Uh, and so we've collaborated together. That's who we started the grocery store um, together with. I work with him hand in hand. Uh, I also have my uncles and my dad who are big cultivators of the earth on all sides, whether that's animal um, hunting, animal husbandry, all kinds of things. So I would say Jeremy and my uncles and my father. You said animal husbandry. What Can you just break that I down know. real quick? Husbandry is like the care of animals, I think. I don't know. I'm not really into animals. I just deal with the vegetables. (laughs) I I do have two cows just because to say I have some cows, but I do not. (laughs) I actually really don't enjoy animals. I mean, (laughs) they're cool. But two-ton horses, they're they're like dogs. And so you don't want a two-ton dog jumping around. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Sounds fun. So one of the things we were talking about a little bit earlier in this conversation was like food deserts and CSAs and like these like farm share boxes and stuff like that. So I kind of wanted to hear a little bit about what you're doing in the Sunnyside Community Share and also the Black Farmer Box and and how that works. Definitely. So the Sunnyside Community Share is what we grow on our farm. So right now we're getting ready for summer season, which is cucumbers, okra, uh, malabar spinach, uh, scotch bonnet peppers. Um, We we do a lot of, now that we're having this Caribbean type of weather, we had like 14 inches of rain last year in the month of May, which is like unheard of. So we're doing a lot more Caribbean style uh, food. Uh, So we have like yucca, cassava, things like that coming up. And so when those come up, we pack them up and we go off our community list and we call and say, hey, we have an order and say, Hey, yes, I'm home or yes, leave it on the porch. And so I leave it on the porch. And then with the black farmer box for people who don't live inside the zip codes, we, um, we put our harvest together and we sell that as a way to Mm. raise money and to get farmers paid first for first and foremost paid for what they say they want to be paid. And two, you get local organic produce grown within, you know, 30, 45 mile radius. I think it's super important to eat inside of your own ecosystem and to eat culturally relevant food that is good for you. So you're saying like Callaloo, like that's something that we're looking at getting at the farm. Um, I know some people call Malabar spinach Callaloo, depending on where you're at, (laughs) but Amarith is the Callaloo that is um, 
the one that we're going to start growing as well. But like I said, there, there's not a lot of people who have usually have to leave or go to specialty stores to get the type of produce that we're growing. So it's nice to be able to provide that um, at low to no cost. That's amazing. I was saying earlier that like me experiencing something like that was life changing for me to to suddenly have access to stuff that was grown locally. And for our listeners, the Callaloo connection we asked earlier, I asked everybody what they had for breakfast and Tanya had some Callaloo. And so uh, that was what that connection was. <laughs> Right. And we had also spoken a bit about um, farmers markets and how people in different communities were accessing their produce. And the the share that you mentioned sounds like an amazing experience. I would definitely love to get some of that Caribbean produce that you mentioned. Do you have plantains? (laughs) Let's talk about that. (laughs) I'm trying. I'm trying. That freeze took out everything from us about two years ago in February. We had a really bad freeze in Texas. So we lost all of our citrus and lost all of our fruit trees. So we're getting them back. But plantains are definitely uh, something my my brother's girlfriend, she's um, Haitian. And so she's always making us plantains. So I I really enjoy them. Can you share, based on what you're saying, do you see any connections between farming and climate change? Uh, everything. <laughs> um, I can say we've had record rainfalls, which is really bad for plants. It causes fungal disease and they need the sun. And so sometimes you can, you can flood out your whole fields when they don't need to be. We're seeing record temperatures. And in Texas, we're seeing record winters. So we're having very, very cold winters now where we're getting below freezing, where we might only, we used to only go maybe two or three days with freezing temperatures. Now we might go a week with abnormal temperatures. Now I can't say this or that, but yes, our climate is changing drastically, but I'm lucky enough that I started farming in the middle of this. So I'm able to just jump with it uh, as it's going and I'm learning versus having done it for 15 years and this is what I've always done on March 15th I start all of my tomato plants and, <laughs> and then March 20th it's a free so you know, you know I've, I've been able to to jump back and forth with it and dance with it but it is something that is a, a, a rising battle every single day I love that imagery of being like dancing with it and, and moving with it. When I think about climate change's connection to farming, it's interesting because I see it as both like on the solution side and the problem side, right? Like huge factory farms have such a huge impact on climate change, especially in places like in the rainforest where they, they clear huge swaths of land for farming. But then also what you were describing, sharing with people who like, you're going to eat food that is within 30 to 40 miles from where you live. Like that's part of the solution as well. Definitely. And getting our soil back healthy, which is really important. Absolutely. Do you see a role of the traditional knowledge that, you know, you probably have picked up from persons in your community? You mentioned your parents and your uncle and your family all working in the farm. Are there any techniques that you're learning? Yeah, I I, I don't know if it's necessarily towards like the climate. It's more um, plant-based medicine that I'm learning. Um, They take three leaves from plants and do this and chew this and spit that. Um, there's there's a, a guy that comes and volunteers at the farm and he's from Guyana. And so oh. he's been helping me learn a little bit more about what I can do with what we considered weeds. Um, and uh, so that, that's been really interesting. Um, so I say, I wouldn't say it's necessarily towards climate change, but 
the kind of the skills that they taught me on how to be, you know, proactive and how to collect rainwater and different things like that have been helpful. But I've, I've been learning a lot of medicine from what we have. That's really fascinating that you're able to look at things that would probably be considered waste or thrown away and figure out new or perhaps old ways of using them. But based on what you said around the challenges that you're seeing in climate change, what kind of assistance would you like to see farmers or more specifically Black farmers receive? I would love for us to... Um, look at more permaculture practices in our areas. Because when you look at permaculture and soil health, they're not being taught by us, but we really know how to reuse. I think that regenerative agriculture is essentially a lot of traditional ways of how we've been farming, like no-till methods and things like that. We didn't have tractors. We didn't always have tractors to till up or tillers to use. And so we had to use the horse manure. We had to reuse. And and when you cut down a plant, you're, you're chopping it up and laying it back down yeah. um, instead of throwing it on another pile or making a compost. And so these are things that we've traditionally done, but permaculture practices to solidify our knowledge with, I guess, culturally studying and what's been putting put out into the world in this farming space. Um, I think that we have a lot of teeth in the game, but we haven't been able to necessarily chew. Hmm. That's a very interesting way of putting that. And that's certainly something that we would like to see some advancement on. For like people who have aspirations of being farmers who don't have like the background that you have and like family who've done it, would you have advice for folks? If uh, if you want to do farming, make a plan that doesn't involve the produce. I would honestly say that it takes three years before you can really get a great harvest on what you really, really want. So the first three years have a great business plan. Farming is a business. And so make a great plan to make money because farming is very expensive. Soil is very expensive. Equipment amendments, labor is very expensive. So make a plan for how you're going to pay for your farm. Um, overall, have fun, uh, grow as much as you can, uh, trial and error. It's, it's all a scientific theory. But make a business plan, a true business plan, as if you didn't have any produce and don't count on your produce until you you can count on your produce. <laughs> <laughs> Things happen quickly. I say you can have a rabbit come in and feast on all your oh, lettuce. No. <laughs> you, you can have there's all different types of things that can happen. Um, so always expect the unexpected in farming for sure. Hmm. I hear a lot of resilience in that because I think in a lot of other professions, you start to rely on things that actually aren't that reliable, but it would like the work that you're doing is very clear. That lesson, that principle is very ingrained. Like you never know what's going to happen. Be ready to dance, be ready to move and, and work with whatever the earth gives you. That's Definitely. Really That's why I tell most people is that farming is not a job. It's a way of thinking when mm. you're outside. It's how do I get this trailer hitch to work with this and I don't, and it's too tall and I need to use this block in order to move around and the horses are here and the sheep are there and I need to move this to that. It's, it's about the way you think. You may not always have the tools, 
to get it done, but you have to think through it. It's not necessarily what you're doing. It's how you're thinking about it going, going about it. You'd be surprised how many farmers are actually engineers. Like truly. When you think about building barns and building structures. My dad, his formal education is in computer engineering, but I mean, he's built barns and lean-tos and you can ask, you'd be surprised how many people who hmm. don't have a formal education, but have the skill set yeah. to build a lot of things. It sounds like a combination of strategy and practice are needed and that a variety of skills can be useful in the world of farming. So you've spoken a lot about the challenges. Can you tell us what gives you hope? Uh, going and dropping okra off on a, on Granny's porch. <laughs> Granny lives down the street from me. And so it's just really sweet. My roommate um, in college is actually her grandmother. So I moved onto oh. the street that <laughs> they grew up on unknowingly. And so her grandmother is one of the people that are on our list. And so she always tells her like, where's your friend with the collard greens? <laughs> and so going, going over there and, um, you know, dropping off her food and asking her what she's going to make. It really makes me happy. Food is a really big connector of all generations of all people and growing food that looks like the food from back in the day makes yes. people more connected than what is available. So that makes me really happy. Having farm events where families can come out and relax. So anytime we have an event on our farm, you're, I just bring your picnic blanket, bring your snacks, lay out, enjoy this safe park that we've created, do whatever you want, have a good time. So that really makes me happy to see kids swinging from the trees. I used to swing from when I was a kid and (laughs) And just had people seeing horses for the first time or may not ever, you know, been that close to a cow before. So it's really nice to see those first experiences. But yeah. yeah don't be surprised if I hit you up when I'm coming through. I want to, I really <laughs> want to see the farm. <laughs> Should we yeah, just grab I'm, all the food you grew Yeah, it's just, uh, like I said, it's just a little space. When you get on the land, you kind of just feel it. Uh, my dad's been working on it for 20 plus years, 25 years, and now I'm putting my energy into it. I think overall, I'm just really happy in this space and I can't wait to continue to like connect people back to the earth and continue to connect my community back to the earth and some of the cool projects that we have going on, just like turning some of these lots into just flower and herb gardens just for a place to relax and be human. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of us have forgotten that we are human and we walk on concrete for so long that we forget that we're, we belong on the grass. I feel like you might've actually just answered the question I'm about to ask. Here's the question that we ask every single person who comes on the show, which is also the the title of the podcast, what we need now. So in your opinion, what we need now, <laughs> what do we need now to achieve liberation? Places to be human. I think home has become different for a lot of people, especially during the pandemic home either became your safe haven or the place you're running from. And mm. so I, I think we need a lot more places just to be human where no one's judging you and just a space to be <laughs> human. <laughs> as silly as it sounds, I mean, place to take your shoes off, lack, smile at people, um, eat, no. 
in comfort? <laughs> Food is a big part of our culture. It's what connects us to our past. It's what connects us to our roots, to our people. And it sounds like you're doing a fantastic job of creating those spaces for people and giving them hope and helping to achieve liberation. Thank you. I appreciate it. We want to give a huge shout out to our guest this month, Ivy Lawrence Walls of Ivy Lee Farms. I hope that inspires you to find one of those spaces in your local community and the folks who are working on food access and food justice, whether that's a community garden or a local co-op or a farmer's market or a CSA, different folks who are working on advocacy. Now, if you want to get real hands-on and you want to plant some seeds, I got a great place for you to go. Go to ivyleaffarms.com. That's right, website for our guest, and you can get the seeds from the farm that you've been hearing about and plant them in your local community. That, that sounds nice, right? Doesn't that sound fun? It's such a pleasure. As you know, we love talking about food. We're not done with this topic. Next month, we're diving even deeper into this concept of food apartheid and what folks are doing and have been doing to combat it. So you're going to love it. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe wherever you listen to this. Enjoy a beautiful meal. We'll see you next time on What We Need Now. What we need now.